0: Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org/carey. You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you take your Bibles now, and please turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, if you're using the Pew Bible, this is found on page 992. We're in the middle of this study. if you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through this letter, and we've come to chapter three. This is a letter that teaches us what a church, biblically ordered according to the mind of Christ, looks like. Or, as he says in Genesis 3:15, "How one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress." of the truth in chapter one the main emphasis that we saw there was that the church of christ is to teach sound doctrine according to the gospel that's in accordance with the gospel that those who are teaching any other doctrine are to be stopped in chapter two then moving more to this positive teaching Christ's church we see is first of all Its first priority is to pray, to pray for all kinds of people with all kinds of prayers, because it's a recognition that we are not the ones who have the power to change people, but it is Christ, by his Spirit, working through the proclamation of the gospel, the very gospel that's been entrusted to his church. So we are to pray. And then last week, we saw how men and women in particular are to behave in God's household, how men and women are to worship in the house of God, lifting holy hands together without envy or anger or quarreling. Women also joining in prayer, adorning themselves not focused on external appearance, but on that self-control, that gentle and quiet spirit. You remember last week we saw in verse 12 of chapter 2, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We saw how that's speaking about the corporate gathering of the church. Certainly, there are places where it is appropriate for a woman to teach children or other women. But in that corporate gathering, it is to be only those who are men. And so today we come then more specifically to the topic of God's design for leadership in his house, specifically those who are to teach the entire church. So it's not to be women, but it's also not just to be any man in the church, but those who've been called by Christ, given the graces of the Spirit and the gifts by Christ to serve in this way. So follow along with me. We'll start there in chapter 3, verse 1, and read down to verse 7. Hear now God's holy word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Amen. Let us pray together again. Father in heaven, we reminded of how King Solomon, when you asked what you should give to him, responded by pleading with you to give to him an understanding mind to govern your people that he would be able to discern between good and evil, to be able to govern your great people in a way that is wise and honoring to you. We echo that prayer asking that you would give to all of us an understanding mind to understand this, your word, and that you would give to all of your officers in this church and in every church an understanding mind to understand your word, your truth, and how to lead your people according to it. So would you bless, O Holy Spirit, come and work in our hearts and minds. In this hour we pray, in Christ's name, amen. In the present-day church in our country, and I dare say even around the world, leadership has fallen on hard times especially in recent decades. You can think of it, perhaps, against again in two extremes. On the one hand, we live in a very anti-authority cultural setting. We have what we could call hyper-egalitarianism, where no one is to have any authority over someone else, and any authority structure is viewed as oppression, so that you can even have Christian groups and organizations that have no real leadership the past couple decades there was a group called the Emergent Church that sought to do this where they had no real leadership. The result was very much like what we read in the book of Judges where everyone was doing what is right in his own eyes for there was no king in Israel. On the other hand, in response to some of this kind of lawlessness, there can be the other extreme where we see churches becoming almost captivated by the cult of personality, with a ministry being built around one man with a dominant personality. What that can lead to is domineering, authoritarianism, and all sorts of abuse. Perhaps one example that's been spoken of more and more recently is that which happened at Mars Hill in Seattle with Mark Driscoll. So you have these two extremes. What's the answer? What's the church to do? Where can we look? We must ask this question, what saith the Lord? What has God said in his own word? And that's what we come to in this text. We see that God is the one who calls. God is the one who equips men in his church to be humble servant leaders. Now the description that we have read in this passage is really what all Christian men should aspire to, particularly the character traits that are listed here, to have a Christ-like character. You could even say it's the kind of men, young ladies, that you should look for in a man who would be your husband. And it describes then the kind of men that we are to look for in our church. What can be summarized in Second Timothy as faithful men, men who are full of faith in Christ and who live it out in their lives, men who the Spirit of God has worked in through the Word of God to make them into men of God who love Christ and who love his church. So this morning, I want to unpack uh, these statements and these verses under two headings. First, we'll see the noble calling of the eldership in verse 1, and then the noble qualifications for eldership in verses 2 to 7. So first, let's consider the noble calling of the eldership. And you notice Paul calls this work, this calling to be an elder or overseer as something noble, something positive something good. But why is it noble? What are the reasons that we can say that this is a noble thing, a good thing? Let me give you three reasons it's noble. First, it's noble because of the nature of the task, because of the nature of the task. The key word there in verse one is that word overseer. It's also a word that can be translated in English as bishop, it's the word episkopoi. It's a word that's used in the New Testament synonymously with other words like the word presbyter which we translate as elder or the word for shepherd which we translate as pastor. So overseer, bishop, elder, presbyter, pastor are all the same office. The idea that we see in some churches of a hierarchy in church government where you can have popes and cardinals, for example, and then archbishops, bishops, deacons, priests, and on on and on is not something that we find in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, where we see how the Church of Christ in the New Covenant is to be ordered. No, that kind of structure came later in the church, not in these first even century, but it was later in the second century under Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, is when that began to take place. But if we're to order our churches according to the mind of Christ, what we find in his word is that there's really only two offices that are laid out here, elder and then what we'll see next week, deacon. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. It's page 929, if you're using the Pew Bible. And you'll see how these three terms are used of the same office and the same group of people. In chapter 20, verse 17, we read, Now from Miletus, Paul, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Remember, this is where Paul calls all the elders to come to that beach. The Church in Ephesus, the elders come to meet with him. And then if you skip down to verse 28, the next page, verse 28, as the elders have gathered there on the beach, this is part of what he says, part of the charge he gives to these elders. He says in verse 28, "...pay careful attention attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood." So you notice in verse 28, he uses the word flock. That's the shepherd imagery. And there are other places that speak of God's people as, or God's uh, elders as shepherds. For example, you see that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And then you see the word overseers, the same word in our text in 1 Timothy. So in this passage in Acts 28, you have all three terms, all three concepts being used of the same office. They are men who've been appointed by the Holy Spirit to exercise oversight over the precious souls that is the sheep that Christ has purchased with his own blood. God's people are a blood-bought people. God's people are precious to him. And the elder then is one who is to know To watch over, to protect, to guide, to lead, and to feed God's precious sheep. Do you see why this is a noble task? Because what could be more noble than to watch over the priceless treasure of God's people that Christ purchased with His own blood? That's why it's noble. That we're given this privileged position of caring for the blood-bought sheep of Jesus Christ. But then coming back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the second reason that this is a noble calling is because it is one of Paul's trustworthy sayings. That's how he begins. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, where have we heard this phrase before, a trustworthy saying? You may remember back in chapter 1. In verse 15, that great trustworthy saying, where Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And then he'll use it again. Notice chapter 4 and verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then one other, if you'll turn over to Titus, just a couple of books over to the right. In Titus chapter 3, and verse 4, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. There he's referring to what all that he said before. What do you notice about those three trustworthy sayings? They all come to the very heart of Christianity, which is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died to save sinners, to make us those who can be forgiven, restored, reconciled, justified, sanctified, regenerated. They're all relating to the heart of the gospel of salvation of sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. And so in some sense... It's so astounding. It's astounding that that phrase is used for what he says here about elders. Let's pause for a moment and remember again, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? That there is one true and living God in three persons. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, and he created this whole world. He created us to know him, to love him, to serve him, to reflect him in his character, to reflect his glory to the world around us. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, what did they do? Did they obey? Did they reflect him in his majesty? No, they rebelled. They sinned against God and plunged this world under the wrath and curse of God because we have disobeyed. So everyone born from Adam and Eve, in the ordinary way, was born in sin, born with a heart already predisposed to sin, already in rebellion against God. But the good news is that God did not just leave the world to stay under his wrath and curse, but he sent a Savior, his only Son, to be that substitute that comes in the place of his people to do what we fail to do, to live a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly Father, that he always did his Father's will, always loved God, always loved his neighbor, and was obedient even to the point of dying on the cross to take the wrath of God that his people deserve in their place. The wrath of God, not because of his own sin, for he had none, but as a substitute, as that Passover lamb, he takes the sins of his people on himself. And pays that penalty. And praise God, though he died, yet he lives. He raised; was raised from the dead. And now he's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he is at work in heaven through his spirit and his word, through his church, gathering all who will have faith in him until he returns. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That he is saving his people. And this salvation begins for you when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. But it doesn't end there because it continues as he continues to work in you and to sanctify you. And one day he will glorify you either at your death and then ultimately at the great resurrection when Christ returns. And so what's astounding is that he uses this statement of a trustworthy saying to speak about the work of an overseer, the work of an elder. He's putting it in one sense in the same category as the gospel. That's astounding. Why does he do that? Because our God is the one who saves, but he uses means. And that main means that he uses is the ministry of the word. And who is it that is tasked in the church to minister the word but overseers, elders, pastors? These are the ones. And that's why this is a trustworthy saying. That's why this calling is an amazing calling and a noble task and a high and holy calling. Perhaps you're wondering, how how does that work with... a elders and the connection to the gospel, let me put it to you like this. Let me try to give an analogy. It's kind of like the relationship between food, a baby, and their parents, okay? The gospel is the food. The gospel is that which gives life, or you can even say this, the gospel is that which gives new, new life, new birth. The Spirit of God working through that word, through that gospel, gives new life, new birth, and it's that also which nourishes and sustains. Yet, when a baby is born, is the role of the parent important to the life of that child? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because they need food, but how do they get food? The food comes From the parents, the parents give the child that food to nourish them. It's the food that sustains, but it's the parent who gives. Parents are called to feed, lead, protect their children. And in a similar way, elders are those who serve in a sense, we could say like spiritual parents. We're not the food itself. We're not the gospel. It's the gospel that we're to give you, the word of God that we're to give you. But it is our task to give it to you. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, speaks about his ministry and the ministry of his fellow co-laborers in this kind of parental language. For example, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, he says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. Nursing mother is a mother who's feeding the child. Or you think of what he says in verse 11 of Second Thess- or First Thessalonians 2, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He relates his ministry, both of feeding and of exhorting, to that of parents like a mother and a father. And that is the call, then, of those who are in the office of elder in the church. So it's noble because of the nature of the task as overseeing Christ's precious sheep. It's noble because it's part of these trustworthy sayings. But thirdly, we can say it's noble because it is worthy of our aspirations and desires. You notice... How it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. This word aspire literally is to stretch out, to reach out one's hand towards. In other words, this is saying, Paul is saying, it's a good thing for us to strive for. God approves of such aspirations. This is something good to desire. It is worthy to set your heart upon this. Now, as we'll see from the qualifications, this is not referring to some kind of selfish ambition. The idea of desiring the office in order to use it for the sake of self-promotion or self-glory. No, this is not ungodly ambition that he's talking about, but a holy ambition. We must recognize there is a distinction. There can be, yes, selfish ambition, but there can also be holy ambition. Paul himself uses the language of ambition in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, where he says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And so to aspire to this work is a good thing. This is what we often speak of as an internal call, where there is this burning in the bones, as it were, to care for Christ's sheep. And here I want to emphasize this strong desire is a desire in the man himself, not for the title, not even for the reputation, not for the power, but for the work. He desires a noble work, a noble task, for the work of caring for Christ's sheep, of giving himself to shepherd God's people to sacrifice for God's people. And so, beloved, I must say, if the desire and aspiration for this noble task is not there, then a man is not called to this office and this work. But beloved, do you see how wonderful and noble this calling is? Maybe you've not seen it this way before. Maybe you've had experiences where you've seen men who've fallen from places of leadership, the televangelists and others, or even pastors in churches that you've been in. And you say, I want nothing to do with it. Perhaps rightly so. You want nothing to do with the abuse of authority. But let us remember that God calls this a gloriously noble work, worthy of our aspirations. Or maybe you feel, on the other hand, that this office is too high, that you're not worthy, and you can never be able to be in this office. It's right for us to feel that way when we know ourselves rightly and truly in our hearts. But here we have to remember where our hope is found and where our sufficiency is found. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks of his ministry as an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and another, a fragrance from life unto life. And he goes on to say, who is sufficient for these things? And that's a right question for us to ask. But in the very next chapter, he goes on to say this in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 6, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not by the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life Brothers and sisters, it is God who makes people, men, able and fit for this calling and task. As we'll see, not perfect, but truly equipped for this task. And so brothers and sisters, let us rightly esteem this calling and let us pray for the Lord to raise up more faithful elders in our own church and even in our sister churches as well. So that's the noble calling of the eldership. But then let's consider the noble qualifications of the eldership. And here we're looking at uh, what's not the internal call now, but what we would call the external call, where the church of Christ recognizing that the Holy Spirit has so gifted, equipped, and qualified a man for that office, they then can give their approval Again, we recognize these qualifications really should be true of all Christians. And yet there are those qualified for this office that consistently manifest this character. This is summarized by that first qualification there in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. We need to understand what this means. When someone is above reproach, that doesn't mean that they are perfect or perfected. That only happens in glory, when we're glorified. But what it does mean is that it's someone that's not to be laid hold of. That's what above reproach means literally. That is, they're blameless in their observable conduct, free from scandalous sin, and continuing to repent of known sins day by day, to repent of what's in their hearts that remains day by day. So that's what we're looking for in these qualifications, not perfection, but there is a real measure of consistency a continued humility and growth in grace. So let's consider these qualifications under three areas. First, there are qualifications concerning family life, family life. And this is what we read in verse 2, where it says, the husband of one wife, or to put it more literally, a one woman man what is Paul addressing by this qualification? Is he addressing polygamy, a man married to more than one wife? Well, yes, certainly he is. And there are some situations even today where there are those who've been married to more than one wife, and then they become Christians. Not to then divorce all their wives but one in that situation, but it's clear that they are not qualified to be elders in Christ's church. But that's not the main point. The main point of this phrase, the husband of one wife, is sexual fidelity. In the early church, a man named Theodore of Mopsuestia, lived from 350 to 428 AD, said this about this qualification. A man who has but one wife is a man who, having contracted a monogamous marriage, is faithful to his marriage vows. If he's Entered into marriage, he's faithful to those vows. And that means he does not have inappropriate relationships with anyone who is not his wife. He's committed to the marriage with his wife unto death. It's lifelong. Questions you may have include things like this. Does that exclude single men? No, it doesn't. Paul himself was a single man. Of course, Jesus was a single man. They're not disqualified. The point is sexual fidelity. Does this exclude those who've been divorced? The answer I would give just briefly is not necessarily. Was it a biblical divorce or not? Were they Christians or not Christians at the time? And other matters need to be considered. The other aspect of qualifications concerning family life come in verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, he must lead his home well, if he has a family. He must supervise, he must nurture, he must know how to lead his wife and children in such a way that it causes them to flourish. It's a recognition that home is the training ground in which a man first learns what we can call practical wisdom. He not just knows a collection of Bible verses, but knows how it works out in day-to-day life, in the lives of his wife, of his children. He's able to take the scriptures and apply them in the everyday situations of his family. And what about those who maybe aren't married, a single man? Well, then it can be worked out in his other relationships, his relationships in the church, areas where he has responsibility and authority given or entrusted to him, showing how he can care for those under his authority. So these are qualifications concerning family life. But then there are qualifications, secondly, concerning his personal life. We see this going on uh, after that qualification, the husband of one wife, there in verse 2. And what we have is four positively stated qualifications and then four negatively stated qualifications. In his personal life, the positive ones are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. Let's just briefly consider each one. To be sober-minded, it means to be clear-headed. It's the clear-headed aspect of self-control, the mode of living aspect of self-control. In other words, it's a man characterized by a certain restraint, free from every form of excess, every passion and rashness, and someone who is also vigilant, who notices the spiritual needs and warns of spiritual dangers. So sober minded. But then also there's this self controlled aspect. That's, that's really dealing with the prudent or thoughtful aspect of self control, the manner of judging. So it has particular reference to decision making. This self control is the idea of one who can make careful, balanced judgments who considers all sides of an issue as far as he's able to see the bigger picture, to not just hear one side of the story and then make a quick decision, but also to hear the other side of the story, someone who has that kind of self-control. And thirdly, he's respectable. That is, he works to have a consistent Christian pattern, orderly and well-mannered, a man of peace. And lastly here, hospitable, which literally means love for strangers. Someone who will open both his home, but also his life, even to those who are strangers. Now this call to hospitality is certainly something that's given to all Christians. Romans twelve thirteen: contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's given to all Christians. But this must be true of elders in a heightened way. So those are the four positive character. Personal life qualifications, but negatively, you see these four not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And if you notice, these four negative ones correspond to the four positive. In other words, you're not a drunkard, which means you're going to be sober minded. You're not violent but gentle, which means you're self controlled. You're not quarrelsome, which means you're respectable. And you're not a lover of money holding on to your possessions, which means you will be hospitable. This is a man who's not carried away by his appetites and his passions, but controlled and mastered by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. These are men who look like Jesus and live like Jesus, who have what we can call Christ-like character. But Then the third area is qualifications concerning his spiritual life and abilities. So we've seen family life, personal life, and then lastly, spiritual life and abilities. And the one key ability for the elder is to be able to teach there at the end of verse 2. To put it another way, skillful in teaching, both positively to proclaim the message of the gospel and all the doctrine that comes with it, all the teaching that comes with it that's given to us in the Bible and also negatively defend against false teachers. Both of these things are necessary for the elder. Now what's taught and these two sides is clear from the qualifications in Titus, a parallel passage in Titus 1 verse 9. Titus 1 9 reads this way, The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see both sides positively giving sound doctrine and also rebuking those who contradict it. So he not only believes the truth himself, but he must be able to build up others and defend the sheep against false teaching. Why is this necessary? Because there are false teachers in the world. This was true in Titus's day. Titus 1 verse 10 goes on to say, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, and so on. We've already seen in chapter 1 part of what Timothy is dealing with in Ephesus is the fact that there are false teachers. So we must be willing as elders, not just to sit back and teach positively. We must be willing to enter into the fray, to protect God's sheep, to combat false teachers. You can't just say, I don't want to get involved in that. That's too difficult. That's too complicated. I don't want to take that much time to do that. Such thinking is not reflective of a shepherd's heart, but of a hired hand. No Elders must both positively proclaim and also protect from false teaching. So, able to teach. Then also, as far as spiritual life, spiritually mature. Verse 6 says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. A recent convert, it's the word neophyte. Uh, Literally, it means newly planted, Maybe some of you are gardeners. At the beginning of the season, you take a young plant, a new plant, and you plant it into the ground. And you also then may put a cage around it or other things to protect it. Why? Because you know the new plant doesn't yet have deep roots. And so that's the issue here. An elder is to be one who is not a new convert, not someone recently planted in the soil of the gospel because they need to have time to grow roots deep and broad. Now let's be clear, this is something that takes time, but let's also be clear, the issue then is spiritual maturity, not biological age. Maybe you remember the words of Elihu in Job 32. He said, it's the spirit in the man, the breath of the Almighty that makes a man understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Job's three friends were older than Elihu, but their understanding, their wisdom, was lacking. And so it's not merely a function of time, it's not merely a function of age. Maturity is a function of the Spirit of God working through time in the heart of a man, of a woman, to give them spiritual maturity and wisdom. A new convert, if they were made to be an elder, would be tempted, this passage tells us, to be conceited. That word conceited literally means to be wrapped up in smoke, given something that is not of substance, clothed with an authority that they should not have. The one other aspect about spiritual life in these verses comes then in verse 7. You have to have a good reputation with outsiders. It says, moreover, he must be well taught Of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. It's important to see that one who desires to be an elder is consistent in all of his life, not just when he's at church, not just when he's around church people, but in every sphere of his life. Elders have a public role in the community, and people's impressions of Christ are partly based upon an elder's life around and among them. And so he must be one who has a good reputation, even with outsiders. So, beloved, here we see again these qualifications, this high and holy calling. And again, we can look at this, and those of us who are officers rightly say, who is sufficient for these things? Remember, there's two times in verse 6 and then in verse 7, a recognition that the devil is our enemy. The devil is the enemy of the church and the enemy especially of officers of the church. And so I would plead with you as a congregation to pray for your elders especially. Pray for us, one, that we remain humble before the Lord, that our hearts would be guarded against pride or vanity, that we would root out the sin of pride, which truly does still remain in each and every one of our hearts. Pray for us that God would be merciful to us in that way, and pray that we would be protected against the schemes and the wiles of the devil that would seek to destroy and seek to tear down God's church by attacking especially those called to be under shepherds, under Christ. So once again, beloved, this is a calling and a work that is a high and noble calling None of us are sufficient in ourselves. The answer then, as we look at the qualifications, is not to lower the bar. It's not to say, well, let's just get rid of a few of these qualifications. No, it's to recognize that these are high qualifications, yes, but that it's Christ who makes such men, and it's Christ who gives them as gifts to his church, that by his Spirit he works through his word to make men who, though not yet perfected, are being conformed to the image of Christ and in a real way are above reproach. They've grown in Christ-like character. They've grown in the skill and ability to proclaim and defend sound doctrine. They've grown in practical wisdom and are able to apply the scriptures to a variety of life situations. These are the kinds of men that we need to shepherd us. Under shepherds who have a heart like their chief shepherd, to spend and be spent, to be a servant for, to Christ and his people for the glory of God and the good of his church. So brethren, let us thank God for the men that Christ has given to us. Let us pray for them, and let us pray that God would give more of such men to his church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you once again that you have not left us to wonder what your will is concerning your church and how your church is to be ordered, but you have given to us the mind of Christ in the Holy Scriptures. And Lord, we pray that we would be those who would listen and heed your voice. And O Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in everyone in our congregation to make us more and more like Christ And Lord, if there are any here today who don't know you in a saving way, would you come and do that miracle of regeneration, of the new birth, and add to your kingdom, your glorious kingdom, the kingdom that lasts forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.